Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. All right. So, um, I don't know how often you guys have had a similar experience. I'm just going to tell you about um, what I experienced this week when I read this text. And uh, this happens to me from time to time in the morning when I open up God's Word and I read it. And the, the words, I, I go through them, and by the end of the, the paragraph or by the end of my reading, I have to ask myself the question, well, what did that teach me or what did I just learn or what does that even mean? And uh, often the experience is that things don't jump right off the page. Uh, sometimes I feel like I have no idea what's going on or what that adds to my life or the significance of these events. And I'd be hard-pressed uh, at that moment to tell anyone uh, what this scripture is actually talking about. Um, and it, it's at moments like that, if you're anything like me, that you kind of have that choice of, um, are you going to now meditate on the scripture, dive into it, ask questions of the text, um, admitting that there is something there and that it's your uh, deficiency that doesn't see something there, um, or you do what uh, we're often tempted to do, which is just to say we read and close our Bibles and uh, kind of move on with our, with our day. And so um, this week, uh, when I opened up this, this passage and I was studying it and I read it, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was, yeah, I've read that before. Um, this baptism account is in three of the four synoptic, three of the uh, synoptic gospels, and in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, um, it's alluded to, and we get the events right afterwards. But this event is either implicitly or explicitly described in three of the gospels. So if you read through the Bible in a year, uh, you're guaranteed to read about this four times every single year. Um, and if you've grown up in church, uh, this is one of those stories that you can just almost tell as someone starts telling it right? You're familiar with the story. You know kind of the series of events, how they happen. You know about the dove uh, coming down on Jesus. Hopefully uh, you've not been forced to see all those paintings on children's rooms uh, of this event where you have a poorly drawn or cartoonish almost dove uh, descending. Uh, even if you think about Christian artwork throughout history, there's a few events that are depicted pretty regularly. You have the resurrection, the crucifixion, uh, you have the um, the, the Last Supper, which is depicted quite frequently, but this is one of those events that's depicted, the nativity, and then you have the baptism of Jesus and kind of the, the triune God being on display in that moment. So the, the question that you have to ask yourself when you read familiar texts, things that you're used to seeing, things that are initially unsurprising to you, is are you just going to let what's normal or what you perceive to be normal dull your senses to what's happening in Scripture? We have promises from other parts of the text that tell us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of bone and marrow, and really getting at the heart. And then we're faced with the reality that that's not often our initial experience. And so what I would encourage you to do uh, tonight in the time that we have uh, is lean into asking questions about the text and looking at this event with fresh eyes and maybe a fresh understanding, praying for insight from God, so that this text can profit us for the week to come. 
one of the things about expository preaching is you don't get to choose uh, the text that you read. So as you, as you start a book of the Bible, you go through it in order. And so when you get to verse, 20, uh, verse 21 of chapter 3 of Luke, you preach it just like you preached, you know, um, the resurrection. You can't just cherry pick in things that you like to read. Uh, you read through it in order as it was written. And we have to admit that if we don't see something here, it's on our part that there's a deficiency, not on the part of the Word of God. So that being said, I want to encourage you to lean with me in that tonight. Um, and there's really only one point to what we're going to be talking about. There's one main idea that this text gets at, and that is the pleasure of the Father. That's actually the title of our study tonight, The Pleasure of the Father. And the point is, the main idea is this. God the Father takes pleasure in Jesus. God the Father takes pleasure in Jesus. The way this is organized, the way that's written, even in English, you can kind of pick this up, but in Greek, it's even more profound. The subject of this whole phrase, these two verses, is one long phrase, and the subject of it is that quotation at the end, the quotation that reads, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The whole structure of these two verses leads up and kind of crescendos at that moment in time. And even in English, you can pick this up. You can see kind of the passive tense verbs that point to that. You see it says, now, almost like, okay, we're moving along now, when all the people were baptized, were, were beyond all the baptisms, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended. That's past tense, but it's getting less in the past and now it's more moving towards the present. And then the voice came from heaven and now present tense, this is what the voice says. So you even get in English that structure of past, 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 and now here is the present tense crescendo of what the passage is doing. He says, you are my beloved son. That active verb, are, shows that we are now in the present tense, which you use for emphasis in the English language when you tell stories like this. So the, the, God the Father takes pleasure in Jesus. That's the premise, okay? But then the question is, okay, how does or what does God take pleasure in specifically about Jesus? What is it about Christ that makes God take pleasure in him? And so we're going to look at three things that allow God to take pleasure in Jesus, at least three things that this text speaks of. There's many more, but just three things that are in this text. And the first of those three things is obedience. Jesus is described as being obedient. So we're going to look at the obedience that he displays here and how that allows the Lord, the Father, to take pleasure in Christ the Lord. So now in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now you're going to hear me read that a bunch of times. There's only two verses tonight. But here's the point, okay? Jesus submits himself to baptism. He submits himself specifically to the baptism of John. Now, in terms of the setting, John the Baptist is kind of at the peak of his ministry right now. In the text, it describes that to us. It says, now when all the people were baptized. Okay, that doesn't mean that every single person in Jerusalem had been baptized. This phrase, all the people, is saying that everyone who was going to be baptized had been baptized. So this is like the peak and the culmination of John's ministry. He can look back and look at all the success that he's had. All the people were baptized. And then Jesus also had been baptized. Now, if you remember, in Luke chapter 3, we see why John is baptizing people. It says 
that he goes forth around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that the people who partake in John's baptism, as a matter of fact, when they come forth to be baptized, he calls them to repent and to live a life that bears fruit. So then the natural question for us is what is Jesus doing getting baptized in a baptism that is representative of repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Now, depending on how familiar you are with orthodoxy, you would immediately jump up with a guardrail and say, whoa, 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 I know Jesus is sinless, he's perfect, so we're going to have to take that option off the table, and now we're going to have to see what else we have remaining, okay? Now, that's a good safeguard to have in place, but I want to show you why that safeguard is there, okay? There are heretical accounts of this series of events that detail Jesus' baptism as being uh, forced upon him. So there's some accounts from uh, the Gospel of Thomas, or I'm sorry, the Gospel of the Hebrews, that uh, gospel account tells us about how Jesus was baptized because he was forced to do so by his mother and by his brothers. That they hear about John the Baptist's ministry, uh, that Jesus is kind of chilling there with them while they hear about it, and that they all decide they want to go and get baptized by John the Baptist, and they were trying to convince Jesus to come along with them. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that. And then his mother kind of pulls the, well, I'm your mother card, and then he complies, and he goes and he gets baptized. So that is a false gospel account of these events. We know here that Jesus does this willingly, and we'll see that in a moment. There's another false account that tells us about how the reason Jesus was baptized here was because he actually had sin, and that at this moment in time, he gets baptized, he repents of his sins, and then when the Holy Spirit falls on him, he then becomes sinless, and then going forth in his ministry, he is now the perfect sacrifice. We also know that that is false because uh, we see that Jesus was declared to be God with us, Emmanuel, back in Isaiah 7, and that this child is supposed to be sinless from conception. That's the whole point of being conceived of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, that he cannot have a human father because he needs to be without original sin. And so we know that at this moment in time, it is not as though Jesus has any sin within him and that he needs to be baptized for the removal of that sin. So the question still remains, why was Jesus baptized? Now, the best way to get answers from Scripture when you ask questions about it is to look back at Scripture for answers. And so if you know of other places where this baptism account takes place, some might pop into mind. The one I want to turn to is Matthew chapter 3, where we're going to see the answer that Jesus gives himself for why he is baptized. Matthew chapter 3. And in your Bible, it might read, the baptism of Jesus will be starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. And it says these words. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented, he being John. And you see then in verse 16, he goes on to be baptized. So when Jesus, according to Matthew's account, goes to be baptized, notice he willingly goes. It says he goes to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John to be baptized. And in none of these gospel accounts do we have his mother or his brothers with him. 
So we know that that previously mentioned false gospel could be tested against the actual gospels and be found to be false because they disagree with core content that's in those texts. But also, not only does he actively go to be baptized, he goes to be baptized by John, such to the point that when John tries to turn him away, Jesus says, no, it is necessary that I am to be baptized. And look at the reason that he gives. He says, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so I want to lean into that phrase a little bit to understand why Jesus was baptized. He says, according to himself, to fulfill all righteousness. So what does he mean by fulfilling all righteousness? Well, the problem that we've identified earlier that Jesus getting baptized is problematic because it looks like he's confessing to be a sinner needing repentance in order to, you know, have his sins forgiven. John MacArthur points out that there are other events that Jesus does in his life that appear very similar to these things. The baptism is one of them, a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. There's another, and actually this happened several times throughout Jesus' ministry that we have recorded. Jesus takes part in the Jewish Passover feast. And if you know anything about Passover, the whole point of the feast as a Jew is you are eating the flesh and drinking, or you're eating the flesh of a lamb, and you are saying by eating this flesh that this lamb has died in my place, and this counts on my behalf so that God passes over my sins. And we know that Jesus partook in the Passover meal. As a matter of fact, in his final days on this earth, he takes part in this meal with his disciples. So Jesus takes part in the Passover meal, which the eating of and the participating in is symbolic of a need for a substitute of some kind. So this problem that we've just identified in the baptism takes place in the Passover feast as well in Jesus' ministry. And also, there's an account in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus is approached by the, uh, the Jewish leaders, actually really like people who are acting on behalf of the Jewish leaders, and they're questioning him on why he hasn't yet paid the temple tax. And if you remember that account, Jesus turns to Peter, so the, the people talk to Peter, and they say, uh, have you and your master, have you guys paid the temple tax? And Peter goes to Jesus and tells them about this, and Jesus asks him, tell me, who pays the tax? Is it the king's servants or the king's son that pay the tax? And Peter says, no, it's not the son, but it's the servants of the king who pay the tax. And Jesus says, yes, but so that we don't offend anyone, go and fish, and the first fish you pull out, you'll take the, the coin that's in the mouth, and that'll pay the tax for us. And the question is, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is the temple tax is a tax that is imposed on the Jewish people for God. The purpose of the temple tax is to tax the servants of God for the upkeep of the temple and for the profiting of the Jewish ministry. But what Jesus says by asking Peter that question is, is the tax levied on the sons of the king? And Peter says, no, it's not levied on the sons. And Jesus is in that moment saying, see, Peter, I'm exempt from this tax, but nevertheless, we're going to pay the tax so that we don't offend anyone. And in that, you get a clue as to how these other events take place. Jesus goes and participates in the Passover, not because he is a sinner who needs a lamb in his place, but because he has chosen to identify himself with sinners, and he partakes in, as he says here, all righteousness, which means not only the righteousness that is required of him, but also the righteousness that is required of all sinful people. Because he doesn't just come to this earth 
as a representative for himself. He comes to this earth as a representative for all humanity, which means if John the Baptist comes preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, baptize and believe, he preaches that to all humanity. So Jesus, as the representative head of all humanity, goes to be baptized to fulfill that category of righteousness so that when he goes to be the offering, the sacrifice in our place, he can count on our behalf too. He partakes in the Passover meal because that is what was required of a righteous Jewish person to acknowledge that they need a substitute. And he pays the temple tax not because he must, he's actually exempt from it, he's the son of the king, but he pays it because he's standing in on behalf of all the servants of the king and to stand in on their behalf, he must fulfill all righteousness, not just that which is required of him, but also that which is required of all the people. And so him partaking in the baptism allows him to fulfill all righteousness, not just the things that the law says you must do or don't do, but also the things that are almost an extra measure of obedience to show us how righteous and really pious Jesus, in fact, was. So in all three of those things I just mentioned, baptism, partaking in the Passover, paying the temple tax, Jesus continually and consistently in the gospel identifies himself with sinners. In fact, he does so so much that all the religious, religious leaders begin to hate the fact that he dines with sinners, that he identifies himself with them, but they don't recognize that they are part of the category of people that Jesus has identified himself with. They just don't get it. But the sinners who know that they're sinners love the fact that God has said he comes on their behalf and identifies with them and sits with them so that he can be their perfect substitute. So the question, why was Jesus baptized? He says, according to himself, to fulfill all righteousness. That is from the mouth of Jesus himself. He is sinless, and yet he willingly submits himself to this level of obedience and willingly identifies himself with sinners to fulfill all righteousness. And so then when God later in this passage declare that, declares that he is pleased with Jesus, in part, he's referring to the active obedience that Jesus Christ partakes in. Jesus Christ, in his obedience, submits himself to this baptism and God responds by bursting forth from heaven and saying, I am pleased with my son. That's the first part of what he says. In his obedience, he is pleased with Jesus. The second part of his pleasure that he takes in Jesus is seen in his anointing, in the anointing of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with that terminology, anointing, that might bring to mind things in the Old Testament. The most commonly uh, spoken of anointing that you could probably think of from your childhood growing up in the church, possibly, would be the story of David uh, when he is picked out from all of his brothers. You know, all the brothers are there. Uh, Samuel, uh, the prophet, passes over all of them. And he says, no, none of these. Is there another son that you have? And Jesse says, yes, I have another son. Let me go get him. He brings David. And then Je uh, uh, Samuel identifies David as the son. And he anoints him there with oil. And he says that this is going to be the king of the Jewish people. And so that is in some sense what we're talking about here with Jesus' anointing. But you notice here Jesus isn't anointed with oil. So where is the anointing coming from? Well, you'll notice if you read with me in the text, it says starting in verse, uh, uh, I'll start with after he had been baptized, he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And so Jesus is anointed, not with oil, 
but in a different measure, he is anointed with the very Holy Spirit of God. Now this, I want to be clear, is a strange and unique anointing that takes place in Scripture. But it parallels and it echoes anointings that take place in the past. You remember Moses, when he is going to be the leader of the people of Israel, is anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out his mission. In number 17, we see that Joshua also is anointed to take over the role after Moses passes away. We see that in the time of the judges, all the judges are anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to carry the mantle of leading the people of Israel. And we see that after the time of the judges, Saul, the first king of Israel, is anointed to take on that role. He's actually, it says, the Holy Spirit comes on Saul, and first he prophesied, and later the Holy Spirit comes on Saul in power, and he overthrows the Philistines in a battle. And you also see that when the kingdom is torn away from Saul, it says the Holy Spirit departed from Saul, it left him, and it comes on to David. And David is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And if you trace that path throughout, you see that David is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and then his son Solomon also has the Holy Spirit that he receives, and that's how he is so wise and so knowing. And Solomon is actually the last son who gets the Holy Spirit from the David line. And then we see the Holy Spirit anointing prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel in their prophetic ministries. And so the anointing or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit is something we see throughout the Old Testament. You see also in the early chapters of Luke the anointing of the Holy Spirit that comes on uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and John the Baptist in his womb when he prophesies about the Christ and he testifies about him. And now the Holy Spirit has found his kind of ultimate resting place, if you will, by anointing the Messiah, the Son of God. You see here it says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. No other anointing that takes place in all of those other accounts of the Holy Spirit coming on people features that description that he comes in bodily form like a dove. Now what that does not mean is that the Holy Spirit manifested himself as a dove and then flies down from heaven. Okay? It says the heavens opened up and the best way you could describe this bodily manifestation of the Holy Spirit is like a dove. But it doesn't say he came down as a dove. What is probably the most accurate translation that you could get, like a dove is pretty good, but it's more like in the grace or in the manner of a dove that the Holy Spirit comes down, which is different than how the Holy Spirit descends on the people in the time of Pentecost. In Pentecost, he comes down as divided tongues of fire, now preaching redemption, but also preaching wrath and judgment. But the ministry of Jesus is different in that it is marked by his grace and by his love and by his compassion. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit takes on the form of a gentle creature, gentle in the sense of a dove almost, that the Holy Spirit comes down in this kind of bodily manifestation. But the Holy Spirit doesn't manifest as a dove, okay? But what you have here with the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and Jesus being baptized and then God the Father, in a moment, we're going to see him speak, you have one of the best cases of Scripture talking about the Trinity. Now, but depending on how well you know uh, systematic theology, you will know this common fact that the Trinity is nowhere mentioned in Scripture. The, that term that we believe in, right, we believe in a triune God who is one God in three persons, eternally co-equal with one another, uncreated from the beginning of time. That Trinity is nowhere mentioned in Scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say this is the Trinity and then list them out. But we have passages in Scripture that describe for us how the Trinity works together. And this, and also the other accounts that agree with this, 
are also pictures of the same idea, that you have the Father speaking, you have the Son obeying, and then you have the Spirit kind of descending and anointing and empowering the Son for what comes next. And so what you see here is the Father approves of the Son. He sends out the Son, he commissions him into the world, and he, and the Son obediently responds to this commissioning and goes and takes on the form of a servant, becomes like us in our flesh, and then grows in obedience, grows in obedience to the point of where he's even baptized in a sinner's baptism. And then the Spirit, the whole time, you're getting this sense of where the Spirit is moving in the life of John the Baptist and in Zechariah and in all of the Old Testament prophets and here in the New Testament he's moving. And now ultimately the Spirit moves to empower Jesus for what comes next. And so you have on display here the triune God enacting its plan of salvation. So the triune God, it's not God the Father comes up with the plan, the Son executes it, and the Holy Spirit, you know, cleans up afterwards. They all together, from eternity past, hatch the plan of redemption. They're all uncreated, all co-equal, which means at the creation of the world, before the foundations were laid, all of them together in communion know about the fall. They know about what comes after the fall and the plan of redemption. And so they all together in agreement decide what is this plan of redemption. They're in agreement, they're co-equal, they're eternal together, but they each play a different role in this plan. The Father does not assume the form of a man. The Holy Spirit does not assume the form of a man. Only the second person of the Trinity, we call him the Son, assumes the form of a man. And likewise, the Father does not descend on the Son in power. The Holy Spirit does that. So you have all three members of the Trinity playing their role in salvation. But they're so indistinguishable. They're so indistinguishable that even in Romans chapter 8, we see that Paul calls the Holy Spirit actually the Spirit of Christ. And so there's, even with this distinction, there's still kind of a blending going on in how we understand the persons of the Trinity. So much so that if you read the Old Testament, you see aspects of the Father and the Spirit and kind of the, the coming anointed one who's to come. But it doesn't really become clear until some passages like this in the New Testament where you start to see them all on display together. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the heresy that this particularly kind of deals with is a heresy which is known as modalism, which says that the Trinity is one God and he acts in three different modes or manifestations, but they're all not really God that you have God acting on the part of a father and God acting on the part of a son and God acting on the part of a spirit. But here, you have all three persons of the Trinity present at one time, and there's no actor, no matter how good in the history of the world, that could play three roles simultaneously. And so what you have here is a refutation of the heresy, which is known as modalism. You have one God, but you have three distinct persons, which make up what we would call the triune Godhead. Not three gods, not Trinitarian, not a, a tritheism, but we believe in a Trinitarian God, which means one God, three persons, all co-equal, co-eternal from all creation past. And so I just want to point that out, not because that is the point of this text, but to point out to you that when you study scripture and you realize that there is no mention of the Trinity, you don't grow in concern, but instead you remember that in a good set of hermeneutics, you can actually uncover these truths from scripture. And here is one passage you can point to. This, Matthew chapter 3, Mark, when he describes it in Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus, is one of those passages you can look at to understand the Trinity a little bit better.
but I moved on to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now I actually want to back up to something that Luke mentions uniquely that is mentioned in none of the other accounts of this, of this event. And that is that it says Jesus was praying. Jesus was praying. So he was baptized, he was praying, then the heavens open and the Spirit descends. And the reason I went beyond it before I went back is the, you can ask yourself the question, what was Jesus praying about? Right? If you read this text, you don't just move on and say he was praying, okay, great. The question is, what is he praying about? We don't know necessarily, but based on the answer that he gets in the following moments, you can logically assume maybe what he is praying for. You see the answer in the form of the Holy Spirit descending on him. And you see the answer in a voice that screams out from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so at this moment of Jesus' baptism, as he is praying, you can assume he is asking for the promised spirit. He is asking for the empowerment and the strength that is promised for the chosen one of God in the Holy Spirit. Now, what I don't mean to say is that Jesus, before this moment, didn't have the Holy Spirit. Jesus, remember, is God, and God doesn't change, which means he doesn't ever change in relationship with himself. He's in perfect communion at all times, actually pointed out by the fact that he's in prayer right now. But with respect to his human nature, Jesus, remember, lays aside his divine nature, and he takes on the form of a human, and in his human nature, he doesn't actually command supernatural power, and it tells us that he lays aside his divine glory, does not account himself equality with God a thing to be grasped, and here he is praying for the Holy Spirit to come on him so that in his human nature, he can do miracles, he can carry out the works of God. Now, I don't want you to take my word for that. What I want you to do is look with me at scripture that I think points to this truth. As a matter of fact, I would like you to turn with me to, I believe it is Mark chapter 3, verse 28. And this uh, event in Mark's gospel is uh, reflected also in Matthew's gospel as well. But I like the Mark account because I think it's a little bit more concise. And I'm going to read from the top, and I want you to keep your eye trained on verse 28. That's kind of the main point of what he's saying. So Mark chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 22. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. These are referring to the miracles that Jesus is doing that they cannot explain. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty, rather, of an eternal sin for which they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what's happening here is the Pharisees look at Jesus, they look at his earthly ministry, they look at the power by which he works, and when they say that he does those things by a demonic power, he says not that they blaspheme him, 
But he says that when they blaspheme the works that he does, they're blaspheming the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to speak against the works of God, which means that Jesus, in his healing ministry, is doing so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here, when the Spirit comes upon Jesus, we know that in part, this is to empower Jesus to carry out the works he's going to do next. As a matter of fact, he says that every other blasphemy will be forgiven you. You blaspheme God the Father, it'll be forgiven you. You blaspheme God the Son, it can be forgiven you. Not that that's recommended, but it can be forgiven you. But you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, ultimately denying his works as manifested in the person of Jesus, and that is a sin which can never be forgiven. And the Holy Spirit is always operant in salvation. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, as Max reminded me yesterday, that in the former days, we learn about God through the prophets. But in the last days, the writer of Hebrews says, we learn about God through the testimony of his Son. And the commonality between the prophets and the Son is the voice of the Holy Spirit superintending their testimony throughout all Scripture. And there's another text in Hebrews, in fact, Hebrews chapter 9, and this one I will read, but if you want to turn there, you can. Hebrews chapter 9, and I'll be in verse 14. And this one is interesting. This is really the one that kind of seals the deal on the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus for the work. Remember, if you're curious about Scripture, it'll pop out all different places. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And it says, I'm going to start reading in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? Now notice this next phrase. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What the author of Hebrews is saying is that the, the ability of Christ to offer himself without blemish to God was due to the eternal spirit. So Christ offers himself as an unblemished sacrifice through the eternal spirit. And so Jesus in his earthly ministry is not doing this on his own accord, but as a matter of fact, the triune God hatching their plan from our redemption, Jesus assumes the form of a man and the Holy Spirit comes alongside him in his earthly ministry and strengthens him for the work. And so that Jesus can at one time offer himself as a clean undefiled sacrifice through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8. And so then you have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being pointed out as referring to the works of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit comes on him to anoint him, to strengthen him. And actually in the Gospel of John, we won't turn there, but in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist acknowledges in chapter 1 that the testimony that he gives and that he was given is that the one who comes after him, the one we talked about a few weeks ago, is actually known by the fact that the Holy Spirit comes on him. John says in that section that he doesn't even know who the Messiah is, but the Lord reveals it to him by after he baptizes this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him. And John says that was the telltale giveaway that this was the anointed one who was coming after me. And it's at that moment that John the Baptist knows that his ministry has actually peaked at this moment. And that the whole reason he was sent on earth, according to him, John chapter 1, verse 33, is so that the Son of Man might be revealed. He comes to make a way for the Lord. He comes to call people to repentance. But ultimately, the only thing 
he was meant to do was to point out who the next one was. He was to point out Jesus. That's his whole ministry. And can you imagine John the Baptist being aware of this? Saying those phrases, knowing that he just peaked in ministry. He just did exactly what he was going to do. And just like Simeon who said, uh, I'm going to be alive until I see the Lord's salvation. And then he says, Lord, you can take me home because I've done what you told me to do. And John the Baptist goes and completes his ministry in this moment. And he says, and he, he dies shortly after this. Six months later, he passes away. Not with an unfulfilled ministry, but he actually enters into the joy of his master and he hears the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because he raised an empire, not because he was a pioneer in a whole new way, but because he was faithful to the very task that he had been given. And you and I need to ask ourselves that question, what is the task we have been given and are we going to be faithful to it? John the Baptist, faithful to his task, peaks in his ministry and goes to, goes to glory with full assurance, with full confidence, with no regrets left behind. And we need to pursue the same thing. Jesus even says in closing on this anointing, he says, actually, if you look uh, probably a page over in your Bible, in chapter 4, verse 18 of Luke, Jesus is exegeting Isaiah 61, verse 1. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So Jesus even himself testifies that the Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And although he's reading Isaiah 61, verse 1, he rolls up the scroll, if you see in verse 20 there, he gives it back to them and he says, and this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in a few weeks, we'll get to all of the drama that unfolds at that moment in time. But the, the thing I'm trying to point out to you is that this was the testimony from all time past. The servant of the Lord was understood to receive the Holy Spirit. And now there's one more that testifies to this, and this is my favorite one, so I saved it for last. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Remember, we're talking about the pleasure that God takes in the Son. And in ver Isaiah 42, verse 1, God, prophesying about his chosen servant through the prophet Isaiah, says these words, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. How do you know who this servant is? How do you know in whom he delights? I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What he's saying here through the prophet Isaiah is that the way you know who this servant is, the one who the Lord delights in, is that he will put the spirit upon him and that the culmination of this man's ministry will be to bring forth justice to the nations. And when it's referring to justice here, we need to clearly define what it's saying. It's talking about the fact that you and I have an unjust relationship with God and that we owe a debt that we cannot pay and that God, through this servant, pays the debt. He establishes justice. We owe a debt and God is unjustly not requiring payment and he puts off payment until Jesus pays that debt and then it can be said that he brings forth justice and establishes a just kingdom because sinners are justified with God. And now they don't go on sinning, so there's no more injustice that comes about after that fact, when the kingdom is finally established on earth, and that is the kingdom for which 
we wait. And so you see that the obedience causes the pleasure of God. You see that the anointing of Jesus testifies to the pleasure that God takes in the Son. And then the last reason that you can see that the Lord takes pleasure in Jesus is because of his love. Because of the love of the Father, he takes pleasure in the Son. And here's where we come to that voice that comes forth from heaven. And a voice came from heaven, quote, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We have here in Luke's account a voice breaking forth from heaven. And there are a few references in Scripture to a voice coming forth from heaven. But the one that most caught my eye was actually Exodus chapter 20, when you get the voice that comes forth from Mount Sinai to deliver the law that must be obeyed. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor your father and mother, concluding with you shall not covet. You have the Ten Commandments, as they're well known. And that voice comes forth, and when it comes forth at that point in history, it lays down the law. The thing that Paul says is the very bane of his existence because he did not know sin before the law, but the law produced all kinds of sin within him because he did not know sin, but now his conscience is violated by the fact that he continues to sin against this law. In fact, he identifies covetousness as the thing that causes him to sin. And that voice that comes forth from heaven on Mount Sinai to declare this law of condemnation to the people the people who live by this old law, for the wages of sin is death according to the old law. Rather, now this voice comes forward and has a different, a more glorious, and a more gracious message, which is the words, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Same voice, same plan of redemption, later chapter. The early chapter refers to the establishment of the moral law of God. The law that says that if you fall short of this standard, I am just in bringing about death for you. But now, knowing that all have sinned and fall short of that standard, God brings forth his voice again after he has sent Jesus, after Jesus is obediently serving him on the earth, and he says, watch this, this is my beloved son, the one who I am well pleased with. This is the one who Isaiah 42 is saying it's the servant who's going to go forth and accomplish salvation, the one who he's pleased with, the one who he puts his spirit on. It is the love of the Father that is manifest in his Son, and it is that love that causes him to take pleasure in the Son. He says, you are my beloved Son. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my beloved Son. Today I have begotten you. I have put the kingdoms as a footstool under your feet. And all the nations which plot in vain and all the nations which raise, uh, which, which rebel against me, you, they will be a footstool to you. This is the king of which he speaks. This is the beloved son of God. And now the word sonship doesn't necessarily imply kingship, except for all of the context we've just established. As a Jewish person, you know of all these prophecies. The Holy Spirit comes down. John the Baptist baptizes him. A voice comes forth from heaven and he says, this is my son. So in all that context, the only thing that you can be left with is this is the son of God who the Holy Spirit comes on. Oh, this is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. They're all the same word in Greek. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, they all refer to the same thing. And here it is referring to the son of God. The one who he says he will make 
the kingdom's his footstool. He says he is well pleased with the son, which means Jesus is a sinless, perfect, spotless lamb. He is a perfect sacrifice, and God is saying, I am pleased with the work of this son of mine. Now, I don't want to lean into this too much, but if you, if you draw out a little bit and you look at the picture that's being painted, remember John the, Baptist, John the Baptist is a Levite. He is the son of Zechariah, who's of the priestly order, which means John is from the tribe of Levi. His mother, too, is of a high order in the tribe of Levi. And the Levites in the Old Testament have a specific role which is to not only offer sacrifices, but to consecrate sacrifices before God. And here you have Jesus, of whom John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he is, John the Baptist has baptized him, now presents him, the Holy Spirit comes on him, and God says, This is a pleasing sacrifice. This is a sacrifice which pleases me. In fact, the writer of Hebrews takes this all the way out and says, obviously the blood of bulls and goats don't satisfy sin or else they wouldn't have to keep being offered up year after year after year. But Christ Jesus, the more perfect sacrifice, comes and cleanses not only the earthly things but the heavenly things. And he cleanses all things by the power of his blood. He is the most pleasing sacrifice. And the picture that this ultimately paints is the fact that it is the love of God that takes pleasure in Christ Jesus, and ultimately that is the thing that secures our redemption by the gospel. He says, you are my beloved son. He also says in John chapter 3, verse 16, that the the way you know that God so loved the world is that he gave his only beloved or begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The way you know the love of the Father that he has for the world is that he sends his Son into the world. That's the way you know the love of the Father. The love of the Father is so great, in fact, that Romans chapter 5 says that, you know, one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though maybe perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God, he's different than a good person and different than a righteous person. God shows his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we're good. Christ doesn't come into the world while we are got ourselves together. He doesn't come to us in our church best. He comes to us in our wicked, depraved, sinful state. While we are enemies of God, he comes into the world. Not how we would die for other people, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we are sinners, Christ dies for us. And not, not even does he die for us, we are raised to life with him. And Christ Jesus dies for us so that in Romans chapter 8, we know that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. The wages of sin was death, but there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because Jesus, through his works, pays the penalty of sin. And then it says in the end of that chapter, what then shall separate us from the love of God? If Jesus is the love of God sent into the world, What then can separate us from the love of God? Can tribulation, can distress, can nakedness, can famine, can sword? No. Rather, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We've been being persecuted all the day long. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And not only that, but what shall separate us from the love of God? 
There is no height, nor depth, nor angel, nor ruler, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul, in Romans chapter 8, tells us at the conclusion, that the love of God in Christ Jesus is inseparable for us. We can't lose this love. God takes so much pleasure in the Son as an extension of His love that we can't even lose it because it is secured not by the things that we do but by the things that He has done. So all those who are in Christ Jesus are secured in Christ Jesus. And this is good news because Ephesians tell us that we're not naturally sons of God. We are naturally not children of God but children of wrath. Sons of disobedience who sin all the day long. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says that, now, what, what a matter of man is this, that he lays down his life for us and that we can be called children of God. John says that that is not something to pass over lightly, to assume that it should have happened. He, he says, that blows me away, that we can be called sons of God. And if we're sons of God, we're heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that is what Scripture testifies about us. And the point is this, that God's love goes forth and it's manifest in His Son. And the pleasure that God takes in Jesus as a result of His love, as a result of Jesus doing all the things obediently, that pleasure that God takes in Jesus, God also takes in those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the way that this works is not just that Jesus does all these things for himself, does all these things for his own accolades, for his own glory, although that would be totally fitting. But he does all these things so that the sinners can become righteous, so that the ones who were sons of disobedience can be, through adoption, made sons of God, can be changed in their nature, can be purchased back to God, can be, justice can be put on the earth because now they're sinners who've been justified. Not by their own works, but by the works of God. And this is how we're secured in Christ. His love, we can't be separated from it. He restores his relationship back with us. The Father looks at us and sees the pleasure that he sees in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus does all of these good works and then actually swaps with us. And he does this not just because he wants to pull a fast one on the Father. The Father and the Son and the Spirit planned this from eternity past, that this is how redemption is to be had. That the Father commissions the Son out, the Son purchases that redemption, and the Spirit opens up sinners' dead hearts so they can receive this adoption, so they can accept this great gift of salvation. And so there is an unconditional love that God gives to his people. There's an unconditional pouring out of the love of God and the pleasure that God takes in Christ. And that when he looks on you and on me, we should be wise as to remember that he doesn't look on us and take into account all of our history. As a matter of fact, the best test of this is if you're having a good day or a bad day, God doesn't love you any more or any less. Matter of fact, he doesn't take any more or less pleasure in you if you're in Christ than he does on your good days or on your bad days. Right after you've sinned and fallen short and committed shameful things in front of God, he doesn't look on you with any less 
pleasure. And this is crazy. This is disgraceful, right? But why? It's because Jesus Christ already paid for that. And he imputes, or what that means is he takes his righteousness and he clothes us in his righteousness. And so that the pleasure that God looks at with the Son is what he sees when he looks on us because we're clothed in the Son's righteousness. So the love that the Father has for the Son is extended to us who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no matter of sinning that you can do to outsin his grace. And the reason I point that out is because this doesn't go out to anybody. This goes out to those who are in Christ. And the purpose of that is it is a costly grace. It is a grace that costs Jesus Christ his life. So it is not something that we should casually think of. But the, the point is that we can be freed from our sin. We can be free to walk in new life because we're not carrying the burdens of the past. We're not carrying the shame of the past. We're not carrying the shame of our old failures and our old sinful ways. We are carrying the new life that has been purchased for us in Christ. The pleasure that God sees in Christ, he sees in us, which means we can walk and live our lives knowing that the pleasure of God is on us. Which doesn't, that, you know, if, if we can keep on sinning that grace may abound, should we keep on sinning? Paul says, no way. You don't get it if you think that this is a free license to sin. The point is, you are free to live in righteousness, not to be bound by sin, not to be chained by your shame, but to live to Christ. And the way I want to close is by closing with the very words of Paul after he concludes his reflection on all these things in Romans 11. He reflects on Israel, the state of the church, this redemption that Christ has purchased, and he closes with these words in Romans 11:33. Now I think it's just such a fitting way to reflect on this. He says, "Oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the glory that you have put on display by sending Christ to this earth to live a righteous life, to die a sinner's death, and that he was so pleasing in doing that that you raised him to new life. Lord, I pray that uh, you would allow us the grace of being able to be freed from the sin and the bondage to sin and the shame that sin carries with it and live this out as, a, as an actual reality, Lord. We know that we have been purchased. We know that we have been bought with a price and I pray that you would allow us through your Holy Spirit to live out in your pleasure. The freedom that that provides, the joy that that provides for us to worship you and raise our voices to praise you for the thing that you have purchased for us. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to be able to read your word, to be able to study your word, and Lord, to be able to glorify your name. And I pray that this free gift that you have given us would not pass from our minds too lightly, but Lord, that you would sear it into our souls and allow us to meditate on these words so that we can continually overflow as Paul does with joy again and again and again. How unsearchable are your ways, O oh God. And you deserve 
glory. Amen.